All right, we are live. Welcome everybody to another episode of Elevate Your Grind brought to you by the Cannabis Lab. I am your host, Todd Rosales. Um, Mark Zuckerberg has a problem with me apparently because we are not able to go live on Facebook. However, we are going live on YouTube. I don't know if anybody can hear us or not, but we're out there in YouTube land for all of our, our hundreds new subscribers. You can see us. Hopefully, Rob will pick us up and get us onto the Facebook feed. I have an awesome guest today, but before we get into that, this podcast was brought to you by Cannabis News Florida. Folks, if you don't know who Charles Felix is, you need to get out into the cannabis world more, okay? Without Charles Felix, this podcast would not be possible. He was the one who got me my first episode done. He got us live. He brought the equipment. He did literally everything. And because of Charles Felix, I can sit here and do this with you today. Charles has kind of been my inspiration for this. He sets up shop at almost every cannabis conference across the state. If you've recognized, he's got the big green cannabis Hummer. The guy is on top of everything and brings you the best news in the industry of Florida. If, or I'm sorry, in the industry for Florida. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to know where I get most of my information in the state of Florida at least the stuff that's accurate, I get it right from Cannabis News Florida. So check them out at CannabisNewsFlorida.com. That is CannabisNewsFlorida.com. All right. My guest today, we have been going back and forth trying to get this scheduled. And again, Zuckerberg apparently didn't want this interview to happen. She's got all the answers. She's going to expose everybody. But realistically, she is a hard worker. She is an extremely incredible person. And she's introduced us to some great guests that we have have had here on the show. So my guest today is one of the top 15 most powerful women, powerful and innovative women by Forbes and one of the top 20 women that will dominate the international cannabis space by Benzinga. We can get into all the other stuff she did, but right now I am most interested in the company that she is working on currently, something that I'm extremely excited to understand. And I just realized I'm probably going to butcher her last name when I announce who it is, so I'm going to apologize in advance. So please welcome the co-founder and president of House of Saka and so much more, Cynthia Salarazeta. Well, thank you, Todd, for having me. Um, it's really great to be on the show. And that wasn't thank terrible. Oh, so salary, Zada. Look, so salary like the pay, za, and then duh like duh. So salary, <laughs> Zada. Salary, Zada. It's okay. I, I know that you're friends with uh, Rosie Matteo, and I literally asked her right before she came on the show, I said, how do I pronounce your last name? She told me, and then I continued to butcher it right after that. So from now on, I butcher and then ask. Cynthia, you, you have done so much in the cannabis industry. Um, you are a co-founder of Green Market Media. You're founder of Access Wire. You founded Solar Media, your PR firm. You're a co-founder uh, and, and a president of House of Saka. Um, can you do me a favor and leave some companies for the rest of us? <laughs> yes. Well, over the last seven years in a emerging brand new industry, there's lots of opportunity. Um, I was shifted into the industry with... Um, the idea that my mass media relations and public relations strategic communication skills could help advance um, legislation and credibility for cannabis overall. Um, in doing that, you tend to have your hands and your contacts are full of everything you can imagine throughout the industry. So once I understood the landscape, where the opportunity was, where the trends were. I also produce or create and write um, cannabis trend report, cannabis brand report. And in developing those over the years, I noticed where a lot of the openings were and just went in and took a shot at it. And here I am. Very cool. <laughs> now, and now, instead of being at South by Southwest this year, you're on our lovely web show. So I'm so that. happy to have you. Um, <laughs> let's back it all the way up. So one of the things that I thought was really cool um, is you didn't, you didn't go straight from high school to get your degree. You actually worked a little bit and finished school later on. I, I read that, I think, in a Forbes article. I think people kind of undervalue what that can do for somebody because – I remember my four years in college, I took classes, I learned and everything else, but the, the actual physical education that I got in school is not what I use 
on an everyday basis. It was my first few years in my career that I lean on hard in everything that I do, in my life experiences and everything else. College taught me how to be independent, how to be responsible, and kind of how to be an adult, life lessons on that end. But it didn't truly give me the education, maybe some, some base marks here and there, I can only imagine the different experience you had where you had that real world experience and then you can go into school. Do you think that kind of helped a make you appreciate college more and do it the right way? And then B, do you think it's kind of helped you get to where you are right now? Yes. And yes. Um, Right now where I stand, I'm in that whole, I wish I knew then what I know now because I would be 10 years ahead of the game and probably in a much different position if I would have just gotten this done earlier. But I also recognize that at the time I thought I was, you know, I didn't need school. I would just go right into work. I tried it for a couple of years to keep my parents happy. I just, I hated it. You couldn't get me to sit down in school, sit still. So I went out and I worked all over the place. I managed restaurants. I I did a little bit of everything you can imagine. And that has been the foundation of everything for me. It was priceless. The experience that I had, number one, got me into the school that I wanted to go to school or where I wanted to go when it was time. But I had to come to the decision myself. Um, Not only did I appreciate the experience so much more, but I knew exactly what I needed to get out of it. So for instance, um, when I did go back, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I knew quite a few things at that time. Branding, okay? Mm -hmm. And that really what you get out of a school like that is the network. So what I look at college as is kind of proving to the world that you can complete something in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. You're right. The education that I received, I'll probably never use. I use it when I argue with people on Facebook. (laughs) I have a a background in modern Middle Eastern studies and international communications. And I did a ton of research with DOD on so many of the things that we're seeing in our everyday lives now. So other than trolling people on Facebook, um, the value of UPenn for me was when I did step out into work and go into this particular industry, all of a sudden, all of those contacts that they tell you about in school that you know is happening, but you just really don't get it. Um, I mean, it was the alumni at UPenn who put me in contact with most of the people I work with here in California and cannabis. A lot of them I'm actually now partnered with. Um, The decision to go back to school was something that I wanted deep down. So I didn't take a day for granted. I never missed a day of school. I loved it so much. I would go back if I could right now. Um, but you could simply not get me to do that when, when I was supposed to, or at least do it right. I did it. I just didn't do it right. I didn't complete it. Um, but I went back and it provided everything that everyone said that it would and more. Um, you know, I, I, when people tell me now that they don't want to go to school, I agree. You don't know one needs to go to university, um, you will live and you will live a possible happy life. It's more about um, showing people that you can, you can finish something, um, proving yourself to you know, a certain caliber of people that you're worthy to be in the same room with them, to make the same conversations. And then what it comes down to is them vouching for you when you leave. And, and that happened for me tenfold. And it was the best decision I ever made. I do not regret it at all. I, I think it's a great decision. I think it's one that not people should should necessarily replicate, but at least they should consider, right? Yes. I think life experience is is a big thing. And I, I always find it hilarious. So I, I've, I've been in the finance world. I've been in the family office world. And I always find it hilarious when I'm meeting with somebody who's 65 years old, 60 years old, 62 years old, and they still tout their harvard degree or their princeton degree or anything it's like dude you went there 40 years ago 40 years ago what i mean i would love to know what you've learned since like okay so 40 years ago you were a really smart person so i always find that amazing that people that deep into the career still place a value on where they went to school right can i I respond to that though so going to a regular university and i've done that as well 
Um, sure, that's great. But really, you're just getting done that piece of your life and you're moving on. When you go to an Ivy League institution, and I've now seen, you know, I experienced several different non-Ivy League and then the Ivy League. It's a different ball game. It's like boot camp for your brain. It's endurance. There is a, a significant amount of difference in the workload and the caliber of the professors that you have. I remember when it ended, I looked around and I was like, yep, now I get why people nonstop bring up their Harvard degree, their Yale degree, their UPenn degree, you know, whatever they do, even Stanford, um, Berkeley, it's, it's harder. I think it was harder. I mean, there's always a chance that maybe when I went back, um, you know, I was a little bit older, I was 30. Maybe it seemed a little bit harder, but I mean, each one of my classes, I would have between four and 12 books a piece. Oh, like, wow. I don't remember that in regular, <laughs> like in a regular university. It was, it was definitely kicked up a notch um, until the day I die, I now will be able to, and, and, you know, all the money we spend for an Ivy League institution just to get into it, what I had to go through. It's a point of pride for me at the very least. Um, but again, you know, I think that when people these days not going to university, I, I don't think we should be spending the way that we do spend on college educations. I think it's what's going to set America back. It already has. Um, and I wish people could understand it did make a difference. It made all the difference in my life, like literally 360. And if I would have sat around listening to people being, you know, negative, don't go back or... You're older now. It's time to start a family. It's time to do this. I'm really happy. <laughs> I've got the degree. I've now got a couple companies. Now I could start a family if I wanted to and be happy about it. But all I know is I'll go to my grave extremely proud that I finished that degree and did so at that particular institution. Well, it, if you want to rent my if you, if you want to rent my family for a few years so I can focus on, on my career, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm just kidding. I love my family. I wouldn't give them up for the world. But um, I know I appreciate that insight, right? You know, I, I think it's, it's good to educate people. I still find it funny that 40 years later they're touting it. But you know what? Navy SEALs still talk shit to regular Marines and regular Navy people. So and on that note, I guess it certainly makes sense. And Honestly, I can probably stay on this college topic with you for the rest of the podcast, but there's so much more interesting stuff about you than digging into this. So I kind of have a theory, but I'd like to know what brought you into cannabis, right? Because looking at what you did, when I look at the cannabis space that was quote unquote started realistically from a legal side in 2010, when you look at it, you're kind of almost on a level playing field getting started with everybody else based on experience because it's, it's a new industry, right? So someone who doesn't have as much experience but has a lot of thoughts and a lot of great ideas can easily take advantage of that where if you went into a more established industry, it's like trying to jump onto a treadmill that's going full speed. You've got to get up to speed fast, quickly, and there are a ton of massive players that can easily leverage you out of business. Did that play into why you went into cannabis or were there other elements that brought you in here? So how I made it into cannabis was pretty unique. Um, I, when I did go back to school, so when I say this, keep in mind, it's like within the last decade. So it applies. Um, I wrote my senior. You said you went back to school at 30. I assume that was like last year or the year before. So (laughs) not by far. (laughs) That was a long time ago at this point. Um, while I was in school, I wrote my seat. So there's two main reasons But when you hear them, it's almost like it was meant to be. So um, I think it was kind of meant to be. But while I was in school, I wrote my senior thesis on big oil um, and reducing our dependency on fossil fuels and sustainable economic development for the GCC, which is all the Arab countries, um, that their entire economies are based on oil, whatever the case may be. So I did research with the Department of Defense for about a year and a half on that, two years. And it was one of the most disturbing conclusions after years of research with the best resources in the world. The ability for us to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels is um, 
disturbing at best in that it's not really feasible. So that's a really scary reality. And then um, next thing you know, all of a sudden you start to look into industrial hemp. But that aside, that part didn't happen yet. While I was in school, and this is, you know, a pretty pretty upsetting situation, my brother passed away from opiates. Um, and so that changed everything in my life. So right in the beginning of Penn, my brother passed away. Then all of a sudden, I'm doing all of my research on big oil. And then the next thing you know, um, when I graduate, somebody from the cannabis industry who was getting ready to launch, actually a friend of mine and his partner out of Chicago are getting ready to launch this big cannabis company and asked me to come and join them. And I laughed at them. I was like, what are you talking about? I just spent the best years of my life in school with my head in more books than any human should ever engage. Um, why would I work in weed? Like, what are you talking about? This was bizarre yeah. to me. And they told me to look into um, two things. What cannabis could do as an exit drug for opiates and then um, industrial hemp as it pertains. So this person knew exactly. Of course, they watched me, you know, for quite a few years with my other best friend. Yeah. They were partnered with, you know, finished school. But, you know, they knew exactly what to tell me to look at. And, of course, I took the time and I, you know, I looked at it. And between what cannabis could do for opiates and the trauma that that caused my my entire family and what that did when it rocked my world, um, mixed with the promise of industrial hemp and how it could help us actually provide a solution to reduce dependency on fossil fuels. I was like, okay, I'll give it a couple years. At that time, my father, who essentially, you know, he was a master chief in the Navy, never smoked a cigarette, like one of those, like, uh, like a Navy SEAL. All right. Like with yeah. job when I was growing up, like 10 miles a day with trash bags all over his body. Like that's my dad. Um, wow. like total, 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 like just Navy guy. Um, so cannabis is the, my point of that is like cannabis for my dad is the furthest thing you could ever, like he's very <laughs> anti smoking, anything, anti-drugs, everything. And then my, advisor um, at the DOD, my mentor, I guess, was the professor of national security. He was also the expert for oil for Egypt and all of the Middle East or whatever the case may be. Between him and my father, they sat me down and they explained that this was a huge opportunity and, and just to go into cannabis, give it a second, first off, help out the entire cause so that there's not as many people like my brother and families that have gone through the trauma like mine have. Um, but to just go and, and, and take a look at the possibilities, learn how to launch companies, because my goal was to work in global water security, which is the number one threat facing the entire planet at this time is no clean water. Um, mm -hmm. So that is, a, you know, where I want it to be. Um, but they sold me on coming into the industry, helping out, learning how to, to, to operate companies, what all of that meant, how to raise money, and then shift over into global water security. So I did. I gave it a shot, and here I am, and it's been the best decision I ever made. It was really risky in the beginning. Um, you know, we were told we would never be able to go back and work in another industry, um, that we were going to be soiled. People would look at us as drug dealers. Um, so we knew the risk when we, when we moved over. But I knew what, who was behind me, at least. Um, and that included people at the DOD. So I yeah. knew there had to be something to it. Um, so that, I joined Cannabis, and, and seven years later, here I am. That, that's incredible, because you wouldn't think that those two people in particular, as you described them, would be the ones to push you this way. Literally the you two know, that I thought would be pushing me towards a state department job or whatever the case may be. But the truth of the matter is they were like, if you want to change the world, you cannot do that behind a desk at the state department, go make a bunch of money and make your moves. So here I am. Yeah. It's, 
It, it's it's interesting, right? You know, you you wouldn't think that they would push you into cannabis, and and here you are. It you don't. It, it, I think it goes back to the stigma of the plan itself, right? You don't know people's opinions on it because you don't really have those conversations openly. I mean, now I'm sure it's completely different considering all the accolades and everything else that you have. But, you know, back then, it, when you're a cannabis user or anything else, you don't, you always have to feel somebody out to see how they feel about it, to have an open conversation with them. So I'm sure growing up, maybe they had some of these thoughts, especially the unfortunate things that happened to your brother. Maybe your dad's thinking, you know, if we would have tried this, whether I agree with it or not, um, you know, it's funny. And, and I want to kind of use that as a segue into my next topic on your first company is I, I saw this awesome thing, which you basically had a thesis where the cannabis stigma was created by a PR campaign reefer madness right and you said well if a pr campaign created the stigma it's going to take a bigger pr campaign to fight it and that's what led you to start your first company which was solar media right yep or a first one in cannabis yes so technically before i started my pr firm i started a company with robert hoban and gregory gershengorn of the denver clone store Um, We started something called the Cannabis Professional Advancement Series. It was an events company within cannabis. That was technically the first one, but that was sold after about a year and a half. Um, Then I started Solar Media Group. I had been in PR. I mean, that is what I do at my core. I'm in public relations. I happen to do it, I think, okay. Um, I think you're very good. (laughs) And so I'll always do PR on some level, but it made the most sense for me to start a public relations firm. And in the beginning, starting a public relations firm in an industry where you legally can't advertise, and at the time, you still couldn't even put the term cannabis or marijuana on a press release, hence me launching the press release distribution service. Um, At the time, there wasn't a lot of- Excuse me, I'll handle the transitions here, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Um. So it it just made sense. You know, a lot of the PR I was doing for the most part in the beginning was, you know, at no cost. You were just kind of helping the entire movement. Everybody just jumped in, all hands on deck. You had all the veterans. And when I say veterans, I just mean the old school, old guard of the industry. They've been hustling and fighting for decades. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, so that simply wasn't an option. Do you know what I mean? That was an option in somewhere like California for the last 20, 30 years. It became an option in 2010 in in Colorado, then Oregon, or whatever the case may be. But it definitely was not an option in in New Jersey. So you kind of had this mixture of people with professional, very specific skill sets like myself. Um, and then you had the people who actually understood the plant, understood the industry, understood the history behind it a little more than maybe the rest of us who just were smoking weed their whole time, their whole lives. Yeah. Um, so yes, I started Solar Media Group. That's what started kind of everything, um, that accelerated to where it's at today. That put me in front of almost everybody who entered the industry at every different level of the game and still continues to do so. Um, PR people tend to be, you know, some of the most connected. And if you're going to launch companies with, you know, little to no investment and you're bootstrapping, those contacts come in pretty handy. Uh, All of my companies, I've been blessed with that. The technology component, my friends that I've had for years, I didn't have to go out and raise the money to build it. We just build it quietly behind the scenes. Um, yeah, but it all started with Solar Media Group was the first main company, and that one was actually acquired by KCSA Strategic Communications. They sit at 425th Avenue in New York City. <laughs> Ironically, serendipitous. That's awesome. Yeah, I've had the I've had the pleasure of getting to know a couple rock stars in the PR world of cannabis, and it's it's amazing how you guys are basically the backbone of this industry. Especially, like you said, we can't market we can't buy ads in certain publications you know we try to promote this show and if we try to do a paid facebook ad you know we'll get flagged and i think it's amazing how important pr is to this industry because i i don't remember if it was deray or or rosie who who explained it to me but you can't buy an ad in the new york times but you can get them to write an article about your company so it's incredible and 
Yeah, our skill set happens to be one of the most um, powerful within this industry because you're right. In any other industry, you can just pay for all the press that you want in some way, shape, or form, um, which that left a lot of PR firms confused when it came time to actually move into this industry. Um, they don't know what to do when they don't have those large budgets to spend. Then you have to be the most creative and well-liked PR person on the block because that's the only way you're getting through to the news. Um, in the beginning, we had to just fight to get attention. Then eventually there was um, specific writers to a different beat on cannabis. So that made our lives a little bit easier. Now, all of a sudden, here we are today and you're now fighting 9,000 brands. And it's one of the most saturated industries to try to fight for in media, which also brings the original um, PR people who have been around for the last four or five years, people like Rosie, myself, Gaynell Rogers, uh, Gia Marone. Um, these people have a skill set and have networks that I don't care if you're Edelman PR, which is the largest PR firm in the world, it will take them at least a year and has, we saw them, they, they stepped in and it's still taking them time and they're losing clients left and right. And they are the best. They are the bar in cannabis. I mean, in PR, PR. Uh, they're still struggling to figure out the landscape. So the relationships that these key PR people have are the most valuable thing that you pay for when you're paying for PR. Um, you can't just, as a cannabis company, you simply cannot just go buy and pay for the most expensive PR firm in the world. It, it'll be a waste of money if they haven't been operating within cannabis for at least a year. Uh, it's really cool because it kind of almost makes everything somewhat of a, of a meritocracy, right? It's you have to do your job and do it well to be successful. You can't just buy your way into this industry. And I think a lot of people have learned that the hard way, right? So... Um, so we'll fast forward. So you, as Solar was acquired, and then you go on because one company wasn't enough. You, you found Access Wire and Green Market Media. So to be clear, there was an ecosystem in place there. And both of those entities were created out of necessity. So I, we weren't getting any attention from the street. We weren't getting any attention from, um, you know, CNBC. Well, Screw it. Let me go find um, the best finance writer <laughs> that I can put paying attention to cannabis. We'll just launch our own business outlet. Um, so we did. And then the press releases. So eventually this will all work as a large ecosystem. I'm actually partnered with the founder of PR Web. Um, and for the last year and a half, we've been building out a really amazing uh, digital PR and marketing platform that will tie into Access Wire and it will utilize Green Market Report. So all of that will come together and make sense um, soon. But yeah, that's, uh, that's where we are. That, that's awesome. So I mean, like I look at you and the way that you've just gone through life and the way that you attack life is you see a need and you don't just say, well, we can't do that because this doesn't exist well, we need this. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go make it, right? I'm going to go make it. And I think it's really cool because this, each step of your journey builds upon the last one, right? One of the things that you mentioned before you came on is everything kind of happens for a reason. As something yeah. happens, it leads to something else. So if you were not as successful, and, and when I say successful, if you didn't have the scars from Solar of all the stuff that you couldn't do, who knows if green market media and access wire would even exist, right? And now to me, it sounds like this is, and not sounds like you basically just said it, this is all going to be part of a large platform to just support the cannabis industry, right? Yeah. I think that's so cool. And um, cannabis and, and what? Oh, <laughs> and psychedelics. Psychedelics, listen, psychedelics are just as important when we look at plant medicine, right? It's not, and that's, I think, some of the when people look at cannabis, right, they still go back to the smoking a joint thing when there's so much more to it. And I think psychedelics kind of fit in that vein, you know, not to bring up your brother again, but a lot of these opiate addicts and a lot of these and a lot of people who have problems with PTSD that end up getting prescribed this stuff. Psychedelic therapy is another option that's uh, being explored. There is literally no question. Um, so when I first got into cannabis and was trying to understand how to help influence, I was sent down to Florida. Florida had just failed in passing their medical marijuana laws. So 
okay, now I have to figure out how to change the hearts and minds. So you go to the most conservative state in America. All right, so we're going to start working with veterans and we're going to start working with um, children. So Canna Moms and then Weed for Warriors Project at the time, that's what was going on. Um, I utilized those two particular uh, organizations to help advance that particular cause. But in my opinion, from the experience that I had with all of the veterans and even with DOD overall, but I think that psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms are going to be the key to healing the brain. And then you use cannabis for like daily management. So the potential for psychedelics and, and also just the benefit of regular functional mushrooms alone by themselves, like lion's mane, turkey tail, chaga, um, all of these have amazing nutritional and, you know, medicinal properties that it's just in mycology overall, it's just been kind of um, ignored. So I think that psychedelics for mental health, I think it is the future of mental health. And I don't necessarily mean you have to go out and and start using LSD or, or tripping hardcore on mushrooms every day. But I think as the research continues to advance, um, we're going to see it's the solution to a lot of problems. Right now, I mean, the entire globe is, globe is having some collective PTSD experience. Perfect timing to <laughs> legalize and start researching maybe the only solutions we have for actual, you know, um, a solution to how we clean this mess up in the next year or two. Um, and I think that mushrooms provide huge potential. I'm currently doing the PR for a group called Midasin Innovations Group. Actually, they just acquired a company by the name of Neurofarm, which includes like heads of the Canadian military, all the doctors from the Canadian military, and they've just executed or implemented um, the very first psilocybin trials for veterans out of the Netherlands. So we're going to start using actual veterans with PTSD and treating them and, you know, evaluating what type of research we can get out of those clinical studies and those clinical trials. And it's, there's huge potential. We're really excited about all of it. I think that general theme just kind of fits in with what I, I said about you, right? It's if this isn't working, let's let's try something else. So we've been using the same therapies forever and ever and ever, and we've been using opiates. And at one point, chemistry was the answer. Chemistry was the answer to medicine because it worked and it worked at the time. But there's no reason why we can't continue to innovate in the medicine world. And that doesn't mean more chemicals and more chemistry. It means how do we, like we are with our food, go back to a natural state, right? And I think you're right on point there with using uh, plant-based medicine because it has a lot of the similar properties of the chemistry and the, and the chemicals and the things that we're using in, in traditional pharmaceuticals, but it's natural, right? And it's yeah. in theory better for you. And folks, we're not talking about, like she said, hardcore tripping or hardcore smoking or anything else. There are therapeutic uses and proper uses and dosages to all of this. So I didn't even realize how long we were talking for because we had the, the media, the, the technical difficulties. We're not done yet, but I want to transition into, and I think House of Sokka, because I've seen Sokka infusions. I've seen House of Sokka. Um, oh, wow. So you are appealing to me because I am one of the uneducated wine buyers that buy based on look and feel. And those are some awesome looking bottles. So talk to me about how you came into the can of beverage space, because I truly believe that it is going to be a massive segment in the cannabis industry, which at some point will no longer be an industry. It'll just be a commodity, but can of beverage world, how did you get there and how did you get it to the way you're doing it today? Okay. So it's actually a pretty awesome story. While I was at Penn, I did a ton of research on, um, central Asia, like ancient tribes in central Asia. Don't ask. Um, but one of the tribes that I specifically studied um, were called the Scythians. And the Scythians are actually a Persian group. Um, but they're the ancient tribe where the mythological Amazonian women come from. So, of course, I was obsessed with this. 
for years. And I always said that if I ever came up with a brand, I would use the term Saka for it because Saka is the Persian word for the Scythians. Um, so House of Saka, that's what that is. And when I use that word, it's because that's specifically the tribe where those Amazonian women came from. So Wonder Women, that's why my entire company is all really powerful women running it as the advisors, everything there. Um, but if you look at the Scythians, in their history, uh, they used to use cannabis-infused wine. Also, they infused it with like... Uh, you know, what's the main active ingredient in Adderall? Methamphetamines? Yes, I, th- I don't know. We'll Those, just say yes for the sake of argument. Nobody uses out. this show for education on that. <laughs> All right, so don't quote me, but um, they, they put a lot of different stuff in this wine and they use it as like a ritual, wine ritual, or I'm sorry, a war ritual, religious, spiritual rituals throughout thousands of years. China, um, Central Asia, Middle East, we've got proof of cannabis infused wine everywhere. In fact, it was called Banga. Um, so anyways, I always kept coming across when I did all of my research in the cannabis industry, I kept coming across this cannabis infused wine and that it was a holy sacrament and this, that, and the other. And it just always stuck with me. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll come up with a cannabis infused wine. If I ever come up with a brand, I'll make it a wine, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I started in cannabis, never really thought about it again. Um, Well, technically, I was a friend of mine who had most of the cultivation for hemp in um, the Ukraine. His family and his brother um, were both cannabis growers and wine vineyard people in Sonoma. So he had flown me out there to meet his family um, to start the project in about 2016 but it was too early. The laws weren't allowing for it at the time. The only person who was trying it was Melissa Etheridge. It was horrible. Um, No one knew what to do with it. So it just wasn't time yet. Um, And then over the years, one of the clients that I picked up um, was Ebu. And Ebu is the, they invented the water soluble solution. They were the first ones to, to get it to market. It was called Genesis. And I worked with those scientists closely Eventually, Ebu was purchased for almost $500 million by Canopy Growth. Um, So now they're technically a Canadian company. But I launched Genesis, which was the very first water-soluble solution that made the beers, the wines, the beverages all possible. I launched that particular product, so I knew that it was time. I knew what it was capable of. Um, And I started the process at that time, but it really wasn't, you know, we weren't there yet. Once Proposition 64 passed, that was it. That was when I pulled the trigger and it was time to find the right team. Because what do I, I don't know anything about wine. Wine making, wine, I'm sorry, my dog's right next to me causing all kinds of mayhem. You're Um, good. I didn't know much about wine. So I went on a bit of a search to find the perfect CEO for this particular brand. And I found her and she actually came recommended to me by the head of the wine executive program from Sonoma University. That's how I found my business partner, Tracy Mason. And really, I had a concept. I had the pieces minus the wine. I had the water, you know, the context for the water soluble solution. I had the branding. I had all that, but I really had an idea. And Tracy, I was introduced to Tracy and Tracy helped me, you know, helped bring it to life. The truth of the matter is, I could never have done this without Tracy. We now actually um, recently brought on another business partner, Sue Bukorski. She was the essentially COO, CFO for over 30 years for Constellation Brands. And she retired like a year or two ago. And now she's our CFO and COO. So really these two ladies brought an incredible amount of experience, talent, credibility, you know, I came from the cannabis side, but this is a beautiful, delicious product because these women <laughs> know what they're doing. I mean, that's the truth of it. So, so you guys are using real, like oh, yeah. Napa Valley wine. Like this is, you're not, this is not a cannabis infused Mad Dog 2020 or a box of wine. This I mean, is like this good wine. Napa Valley wine out there. Our, our base product, of course, we could never mention 
where we get the wine from, but these are some of the most uh, recognized wineries in the world. Our, our, our wine is, is valuable without the cannabis. <laughs> it's a, just a delicious process. Then we, you know, so we have the base wine out of Napa Valley, really beautiful, um, really delicious base wine. And then we bring it over to Sonoma and, and they gently remove all the alcohol and then we infuse it with the cannabis. And, you know, sometimes we add a little bit of flavor back into it, but every glass of our Saka is less than 16 calories, which compared to a regular glass of wine, which is about 120, 120, or 100, between 120, 140 calories, 16 calories is amazing. It's truly wow. amazing. <laughs> that, okay, so now I'm jealous that I live in Florida and I, and I can't purchase I can't it yet. I can you taste it. Honestly, um, it's, it's, I'd say a year I, ago, it was the best tasting cannabis beverage out there over the last year or whatever, over the last like six to nine months. Um, a lot of people, now that the technology has advanced, we work with a group here called uh, Vertosa, who I highly recommend. They truly are some of the most professional, just pleasant people to work with in this industry overall. Um, huge fans of them. Uh, also our partners at Bev Zero. Um, then our manufacturer space station, we really have a great little category within um, cannabis. And yeah, I think that cannabis beverages are the future without a doubt. And yeah, we are, we're in Napa Valley wine. That, that's awesome. Get, Gary V, if you're listening, we need you to bring back wine library and we need you to try this one. We need a wine library as a, episode with House of Saka. I don't know if he's still doing it. I, he does so much. He can still do wine library. I don't, he, I don't know, but he's, he's got his hands in a lot of shit too. <laughs> yeah. So but no, I, I, I almost wish that we can come out. So talk to me about the, the, what, what's most intriguing to me about cannabis infused wine. And I'll steal a quote that, that I took from someone who's one of your board members, Emily Paxia, you know, how much cannabis is in a glass or a bottle because she, you know, she always said that she's into low THC products because she doesn't want to quote buy into the two martini lunch every time. And I love that quote and I'll steal it from her every time. So, so our wine was created to be a strictly microdose experience because we really wanted to provide a product for women and men. Um, that we're not such a traditional cannabis user, all right? Somebody who smokes 10 blunts a day or is dabbing all day long may not experience our wine the same way as somebody who's not, who doesn't have such a high tolerance. And that was by design. Um, we really wanted to provide a comfortable, familiar experience to try to transition people who used to be against cannabis, they don't understand it. Maybe they're not against it. They just don't know it. They're not educated. Um, which how could they, unless you were really paying yeah. attention over the last five years, there's really not a lot out there. It's, you know, the stigma was still real. Um, but we did produce this product to be per glass, which we're saying is five, I love that bottle. <laughs> um, five milligrams of THC, one milligram of CBD per five ounce glass. So per glass, that's what the pink is. The white is 30. The new pink, we changed and we moved to 10 milligrams of THC per glass. And let me explain why. Um, we're in sitting in California. I mean, this isn't the same market as, you know, mm -hmm. Illinois or Massachusetts or whatever the case may be in LA, which is the largest market in the world for, for cannabis. They don't really care about a comfortable, familiar experience. Our consumers normally want increased potency. So it's, you know, how much THC can I get for every dollar? So we had to face that reality and start to, kind of tailor our product to the California consumer. So we raised our THC level. But as of right now, the pink is five milligrams a glass. The white is six. And then we took the jump to 10 for the next bottle of pink. 
That's awesome. And when things calm down, I definitely need to come out to California. Oh, I can't wait to try it. Yeah. I, I've got so many friends that I want to try this. I have so many friends that are big wine aficionados that are in wine clubs and everything else. And it's funny, you know, even within my group of friends and their cannabis users, there's still a little bit of a stigma around it. So I would love to actually use this to get them to open up about their experiences more. I think it's an incredible product. You said that you made it for women and yes, it's a pink bottle and it's rosé and it's a white wine, but I can tell you here as a man who says that I usually drink stereotypical man beverages, red wine, bourbon, beer, pretty much it. I look at that bottle. I'm like, if I'm going to drink a glass of wine, I like that. I want to try it. Um, and on your point, I think, I truly believe that cannabis beverages are the future because going back to the ways that you consume cannabis, if you want to consume it in a social manner, smoking a joint is invasive, right? It, it smells, you have to light it. You're going to smell like it. Um, you know, I was supposed to take a trip to LA for my birthday, like two weeks ago. I don't remember when my birthday was uh-huh. anymore, but um, I'm a huge stand-up comedy fan. We're going to the comedy store and the improv and oh, all those places. So good. So good. <laughs> and I, uh, we were going to go to the original cannabis cafe at some point. And I just go in my head. I go, she will not, she's not a cannabis consumer. She doesn't use she, any of that. She doesn't like the smell. So I think about it. And I go, that's not worth it. She's not going to enjoy herself just in a place where you can go and consume and eat at the same time. So I look at the future. How do we make this widespread adoption? And obviously you figured it out. Let's put it in beverages. Let's make it social. Let's put that, let's put it into the delivery mechanism that people are used to already and then provide it in the places that they're used to it. So I think it's incredible what you're doing. My question is, you know, how does Saka expand beyond California? And that's a very selfish question because I want to know how long I can get my hands on it without having to come see you. Is this, uh, is, do you license it? Do you have to wait until federal legalization or? We're pretty scalable. The one beautiful thing about our, our product is we can scale easily into every other market. However, Um, The market needs to have the proper equipment. So that's where the obstacle is. Essentially, we can comfortably expand into, as a beverage, Colorado, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, and maybe Illinois now. I think most comfortably. But even then, it requires a special piece of equipment to bottle the 750 milliliter bottle. So that actually brought us down to a much um, more narrow ability for us to expand. But the second that the markets are mature enough to have the actual ability to either can or bottle the product, that's when we can make it into the market. Our baseline will go anywhere. Our formulation goes anywhere. All it comes down to is the ability to bottle it. So we can expand. It's, normally, it takes a mature market, though. I don't know if Florida will be there anytime soon. You guys just have such a unique conservative um, situation down there that until we go federally legal, which, by the way, with the right president could happen in the next couple of years. But, you know, with the sitting president, we're four years away from, you know, if he makes it back into office, any sort of beginning thought of of recreational for the entire federal system but yeah we can expand fairly easily um if you look at like a cannabis flower brand that really changes per state um you know if you're like pre-rolls or even if you're a um vaporizing company like each state grows their own cannabis so there's really no consistency from state to state our product will remain fairly consistent against every other cannabis company except for beverages (laughs) that's what we provide that's unique compared to all of the other categories is consistency predictability and standardization which was what the cannabis needed this whole time so beverages will will finally provide that for the entire industry well, I'm extremely excited about it. Um, I, again, I can't wait till things start to normalize so I can get out to the West Coast and we can do another episode where we will taste it and we can oh see where God. that one goes. <laughs> Come to Napa. <laughs> we'll do a whole thing in Napa. We'll love that. 
Yeah, we'll absolutely and do the whole thing. Rob, start start making a budget for this trip, okay? Um, <laughs> Cynthia, I know that we started a little late here, but we're we're up against the hour. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on? You know, doing my due diligence on you was extremely hard because you've written so many articles, you've done so much. There was so much information to consume. I got to tell tell our uh, your friend Eben Britton that I actually had a harder time doing the diligence on you than I did on him. Um, <laughs> He's is there like, anything yeah. else that we missed that we need to share? I don't think so. Um, I think you covered everything and more. And I appreciate being on your show. I cannot wait till you get to California. We will have a case of each one of the wines for you. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, it's a shame. You know what? We have, not that this would matter, but we do have non-alcoholic bottles coming at least for the new pink maybe i can at least send that over in the next month so you can at least try something well i'm sure you and i will keep in touch you've been more than generous making introductions for us um and it's been incredible to to get to know you i'm glad that we finally did this episode and i'm sure you'll be back many many more times so let's tell everybody where they can find you where they can find house Osaka. let's get the promotions going all right, so you can actually purchase, if you're in the state of California, you can purchase Saka right through our website, which is houseofsaka.com. Our social media is at Infused Saka. For Green Market Report, it's at Green Market Report. You can find us at greenmarketreport.com. And in a couple months here, um, the entire industry will be able to utilize a targeted cannabis-focused press release distribution service that should be as valuable as almost a PR newswire, except more valuable in who it's reaching for our industry. Um, and that will be access wire and something called media sphere. You can find that on accesswire.com as well. And I'm on social media everywhere. It's my job. I'm in PR too. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect time to have you back on the show when that gets going. So thank you so much for joining. Loved having you on. And we'll definitely have you on again. Before we go, folks, this episode was brought to you by Egort CPA. Egort CPA is local to the Fort Lauderdale area. Listen, folks, I've been involved in multiple startups. And the number one mistake that everybody makes is they try to take on everything on their own. It's 2020, folks. There are a lot of resources out there that will allow you to focus on what you do best. And you can allow experts like Egort CPA to focus on things like your financials and your books. On top of that, if you're going to go out and raise capital, you're looking for investors, even if you want to get a loan and you're going to be in front of underwriters, why don't you go to somebody who knows what they're looking for and have them do it the right way? Check out their website at egortcpa.com. That's E-G-O-R-T-C-P-A.com. This has been another episode of Elevate Your Grind, and we're out.